Sentire Media. Hello everyone. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 87, Marco Polo, Part 2. In the first part of this two-part episode on Venetian merchant and explorer Marco Polo, we left Marco, his father Nicolò, and his uncle Matteo ready to set off and head east to the court of the great Khan Kubilai. To bring him the holy oil from the holy land he had asked for, as well as Christian priests from the Pope, who ended up turning back not far along the road. Their travels would last for 24 years and take them across the known world, putting them into contact with the cultures and histories of countries such as modern-day Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, India, Tibet, China and Vietnam, just to name a few. All the way to the Khan's old capital of Karakorum and to his new capital of Beijing. It is a tale that can easily fill books, films and miniseries, as well as a whole podcast series. But, sadly, it is out of our scope. Although I don't plan to leave you completely empty-handed. Upon their arrival, the Polos were welcomed by Kubilai, who apparently wasn't too disappointed to not get the 100 scholars and priests he had asked for. He probably hadn't expected them in the first place, and since the last meeting between the Mongol ruler and the Italian merchants, almost 15 years had passed. Interestingly, more or less in the period in which the Polos were arriving in China, a Mongolian version of Marco Polo, Raban Sauma, was heading off to the west. He's a character worth looking into if you feel so inclined. That's Raban Sauma. The great Khan Kubilai was immediately taken with young Marco, whom his father had presented to the ruler as my son and your man. Marco was a very acute observer, highly perceptive and a great storyteller. As well as Italian, he would have spoken Persian, the lingua franca of the East and some Mongolian. He was the perfect man to help the Mongol ruler to learn about and understand his newly acquired Chinese provinces. So started the experience of Marco Polo, merchant and adventurer, in the service of the Mongol Empire as a civil servant. This service would last for almost all of the remainder of Kubilai's reign, and would bring Marco to witness and experience enough to fill several lifetimes of another human being. He would have taken advantage of a very well-organized communication and transport system to China, with way stations, stables for horses, hotels and so on. He would have gone forth wearing the metal plates that distinguished men of command in the imperial administration, with different sizes and different metals according to rank. Some sources even speak of Marco Polo being a governor of certain regions, but it is more likely that he was an official overseeing the salt monopoly. For the Khan, he would have toured the provinces such as Yangzhou and Hangzhou, where today 
you can find a statue of him all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. One of the procedures he would have witnessed was the selection to update the Khan's personal harem. Every two years, Kublai would send out delegates to the Kwongirat or Kongirat tribe, who had, let's call it the honour of supplying the young ladies to the Khan. There would be a first selection of girls. I don't know if they had a sort of beauty pageant thing where they had to display a talent or make a speech about wanting world peace. Then the selected group would be taken to the palace, where they would go through further selection performed by older female servants, who would take them to their beds and spend the night with them so they could make sure they didn't snore or have nasty breath. Finally, the remaining six lovely girls with no troubles of halitosis or sinuses would get to spend three days and three nights in a row with the Khan and then become part of his personal harem. Since we're on the topic of bed romantics, Marco would have also travelled through an area where young women and even wives would have been encouraged to spend time with men passing through, especially foreign men. Then the men would give the ladies some sort of present, such as a necklace or pendant or jewel, and the more of these tokens a young lady had, the more desirable she was. This sort of attitude is way ahead of our 2020, in which we still have a view in which a man with many conquests under his belt is cool, while a woman is not. All of this despite ten whole seasons of Sex in the City. Aside from the more juicy aspects, Marco Polo would have had a first-hand experience of the use of a substance that was unknown to the West, but which, five centuries later, would change the West forever. Coal. It was widely used in the East to warm the baths that they took much more frequently than in the West, where bathing was not only infrequent, but at times frowned upon as a sinful practice. Another interesting discovery he would have made that would not catch on in the West for quite a while was the use of paper money, already in use in China at the time. Although in the West, banking had been around for a while and letters of credit existed, there was, as of yet, no use of paper money. One thing Marco did not discover and bring back to Italy was pasta. Some sources say that pasta was being made in Italy even before the Romans, by the Etruscans. It just took us a while to go absolutely crazy over it. As we mentioned, there is much, much more to tell in the over 20 years of the Polo's time in the East, but that is a story for other podcasts. All good things must come to an end, and by the 1290s, Kublai Khan was getting on in years and the three Venetians feared they would have less freedom of movement under his successor. So, when the opportunity presented itself to go back home, they took it. The opportunity came in the form of a princess, Kokachin, who was to be shipped out west to wed Argun, Khan of the southwestern part of the Mongol Empire. Her party had had to turn back on a first attempt due to warring factions, so they decided to try by sea. Who better to accompany them than the three Italian merchants? They put the idea to Kublai Khan, who was quite hesitant to let them go, but in the end, 
gave them permission never to see them again. Indeed, he would die on February the 18th, 1294. The journey back must have been quite a disaster because there were not many people left in the end beside the Polos and the princess. All this time spent with a still relatively young Marco, he was 37, he was not old, have given rise to suspicions of a romantic interest. Whatever the case may have been, when the party finally arrived in Hormuz, current-day Iran, they discovered that the groom-to-be had kicked the bucket. But a suitable substitute was found for the princess and the Italians headed back via Constantinople. This was because the original plan to go via Acre was no longer possible. This in turn was because Acre no longer existed, as it had been captured and demolished by the Mameluk Sultan al-Ashraf. Finally, in 1294, almost 24 years after setting out, the Polos returned to Venice. They returned to an unsettled city. There was a big issue on everyone's mind, and said issue was called Genoa. The two republics had annoyed each other for the whole of the 13th century with a series of acts of piracy and requisitions. A sort of cold war with numerous acts of sabotage, but in 1294, real hostilities had started with the Battle of Lajazzo, the modern-day town of Yumurtalik in Turkey. In this battle, a Genoese fleet of inferior numbers had defeated a Venetian fleet. The Polos had arrived just in time to avoid attacks on the major families of Venice. The wealthiest were to produce and arm three war galleys, the less wealthy two and the other families one each. In this way, the city managed to create a new fleet of 96 ships which set out under the command of Admiral Andrea Dandalo. On the 8th of September 1298, this new fleet met the Genoese near Kurzola, an island off the coast of modern-day Croatia. The Genoese had a slightly smaller fleet of around 80 galleys under the command of Lamba Doria. The battle was a total disaster for Venice. Of the 96 galleys which had left, no more than 15 made it back. Around 7,000 men were killed and another 8,000 were captured. Among these was also the Admiral Andrea Dandalo, who out of shame committed suicide by smashing his own head on a rowing bench. It is not sure if Marco Polo was among the captured number, but we do know that sometime between his arrival and the Battle of Cursola, he was given command of a ship and captured by the Genoese and taken back to their city. The situation there was getting quite crowded, because the Genoese prisons were still quite full of prisoners from Pisa, who had been captured back when they had been defeated by the great Genoese admiral Oberio Doria at the Battle of Meloria. Among the Pisan prisoners in the city was a writer by the name of Rustichello, and at a certain point he met Marco Polo. What happens when a great storyteller with a great story to tell meets a writer? Well, 
a book of course. It was some time between his capture and his release that Marco Polo dictated his manuscript Il Milione to Rusticello, the direct testimony of the Venetians' travels to the east and back again. The peace between Genoa and Venice was signed on the 25th of May, 1299. It was time to try and put their differences aside, for the Spanish now posed a greater threat than either of the cities could pose to each other in the Mediterranean, especially for Pisa and their control over Corsica and Sardinia. Marco Polo returned to the new home his family had purchased with the wealth gained in the east, located in the San Giovanni Crisostomo area of Venice. Don't bother to go and look for the place if you're visiting Venice today. It burned down in 1596. At this point, it may seem like a bit of an anticlimax, but Marco Polo sort of lived happily ever after. The family, as well as in the house, reinvested their money in bonds, luxury goods, and the colleganze, the merchant joint ventures of the time. Marco married a woman from one of the twelve most prominent families in the city, Donata Badoer. Interestingly, the wedding took place in the very year in which the city had passed laws limiting the level of ostentation at weddings and, in general, as the wealthy families competed to see who could show off their huge riches more than the others. Donata was not one of the white widows the city was full of. Marco stayed at home. He did not get involved in politics and he never travelled again. If they got along, things were great for Donata. If, however, she wanted him out of her hair on occasion, not so much. The couple had three daughters, Fantina, Belela and Moretta. Marco Polo died at the age of 70 in 1324, ready to start his last and definitive voyage. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Silane, Chanel, Dean V, Eric W, Gordon Z, Greg, Ignazio, Old John in Milwaukee, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Patrizia Kappa, Rene B, Roberta D, Rodney the Question Master, Scott L, Shelby, and Stephen, and the Tippy Top Supergroup, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri, Sen, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, and Brandon S. I'd also like to thank Max007 from Australia for his lovely review. Thank you very much. And thanks very much to Scott S. for pointing out the story of Raban Sauma, the Mongolian version of Marco Polo, who did the opposite of Marco by coming to the West. And finally, I'd like to thank Agincourt 1415 and Siena for their reviews on Apple Podcasts. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. 
just to say hello, ask a question, make some observations, uh, complain, um, share some philosophical doubts, or whatever you want to. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. The same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com. You can go to our support page and become a Patreon, where you'll find extra content or support via PayPal, and you can look at maps, timelines, and the reading list for this podcast. Once again, thanks to everyone very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Marco, dear. Oh, my love. How wonderful to see you. How I've missed you. Yes. Well, you saw me at breakfast. I know, but sometimes I think of those cold, dark nights on the lonely expanses of the Gobi Desert. Yes, yes, the desert. I've heard about the desert. Why don't you go out for a nice walk? Ah, a walk. Do you know that I, Marco Polo, walked for thousands of miles to the ends of the known earth? Yes, dear, I know, I heard it. I was just suggesting a walk down to the square, or the docks, maybe. You know your cousin is leaving with the ship. Ah, ships! That reminds me of our great voyage back. After I had said farewell to my good friend, the great Khan, the danger we faced... And yes, well, I just think you need to get out a little bit. Go and have a chat with someone. Ah, I have spoken the languages of many peoples, from the Mongols of the great... Marco! Yes, dear? Go outside! Yes, dear. Are you Marco Polo the Explorer Guy? Why, yes, my good citizen, I am. Wow, did you really get to the edge of the earth? Well, I, I reached the edges of the lands of my great personal friend, the Khan, and... Did you fall off? F fall off what? The edge of the earth. No, I mean, I would hardly be here if I'd fallen off the edge of the earth. And besides... Aha! I told my cousin the world was flat. They don't want us to know the truth. Look, this canal, how much more flat could it get? They? What could anyone possibly gain from a conspiracy to convince people that the world is a globe? I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? That... What about the man-eating monsters? Man-eating monsters? Did you see them? Did they eat you? Eat me? I mean, I would hardly be here talking to you if a man-eating monster had eaten me. I mean, at least I would have to be missing some part of my body. And besides, the man-eating monsters... Aha! So they exist too. No, that's not what I meant. What about the people with their heads in the chest? 
What? And the sea monster, did you see them? No, but I travelled the great Mongolian Empire far and wide, and I... Boeing! Well, good day to you, then. Hey, Marco Polo, Marco Polo, Marco, Marco! Polo. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.